Well, the rise of Marvel films in our culture has been very, very clear to see. Millions, not well, actually billions, have been made from these films. And there's something very interesting that Marvel films do. They have basically made the mid-credit or the post-credit scene famous. Now, usually when you're watching a film, you get to the credits at the end, and we think that we've seen it before, we don't really need to pay much attention. There's a reason that Netflix lets you skip them. Normally, we think that we've seen everything that needs to be seen and that's important, so we don't need to pay any attention. But actually, with Marvel, because of the mid-credit scene or the post-credit scene, it has changed people's perception. People are suddenly paying a little bit more attention because they know that something important is coming. They actually marvel, use these scenes to get you to respond in a certain way. Most of the time, it's to pay some more money to go to the cinema again to see another film and line their pockets even more. But they use that to get you to respond. And I think we can often look at the end of letters in the Bible, similar to film credits. All of the main things that we need to know has already come. We've already read or we've already listened to everything that's important. There's just a couple of things to tie up at the end. But actually, just like Marvel, Paul is wanting to get us to respond at the end of this letter of 1 Corinthians. He's wanting us to actively respond in this last section. And that's why it's so important. And it's a really abrupt change from chapter 15 to chapter 16. We've gone from the kind of highest realms of thinking about what happens when you die and what happens when Christ will return to the nitty-gritty of, uh, of chapter 16, which looks at application. Well, if you look down at the end of chapter 15... You'll see um, verse 58, and Paul ends this chapter by saying this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And the question I think that arises as we get to chapter 16 is, well, how is the Corinthian church going to give themselves fully to the work of the Lord? How is the Corinthian church going to give themselves fully to the work of the Lord? And Paul explains that, I think, in two different ways in this last chapter. Gospel work that lasts gives, and gospel work that lasts supports gospel workers. So first of all, we're going to look at gospel work that lasts, gives. And there's a problem immediately as we get to this chapter. You'll notice that we read about this church in Jerusalem, the mother church, that is suffering greatly. It's most likely that they're suffering from a famine. And the question I guess you're thinking at this point is, well, the Corinthian church is known to be self-centered. They're known to care about themselves. What are they going to do in response to this? And Paul gives them instruction on how they are to respond. The church is told that they are actively supposed to be giving to other churches in need. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, 
Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul clearly gets the Corinthians to think outside their own personal needs. There's a church that's struggling, so they need to be coming to their aid. But look at the principles of this giving that Paul speaks about. This isn't something that they're doing alone. They are joining the Galatian churches. There's an obvious sense that they're not just one single congregation, but they're part of something that is so much bigger, which we'll think about a little bit later. But this giving is supposed to take place on the first day of the week. Think about the kind of behavior that that encourages. The first things these Christians are called to do is to give. The first thing they're called to do is to give. They aren't to wait to the end of the week to see whatever they have left, but the first act they give. And this would have been when they met as a church. So the very act of them both meeting and the very act of them worshipping God was intertwined with the fact that they were to give to other churches. So naturally, when they're thinking about the fact of meeting with one another or worshipping God, they should relate that to the fact they also are to give to churches in need. It's intertwined. The giving also is supposed to be regular. And this is so that there's no rush when Paul comes. It's, it's intentional. There's no kind of last-minute rush here when suddenly you're kind of turning out your pockets, looking at uh, maybe behind the sofa or at the bottom of your bag. It's not like when someone approaches you in the street and tries to guilt trip you into giving you money and you're trying to remember if you've got any change. This would have been them intentionally thinking about what they could give. It's planned and deliberate, which really shows the importance of the gift and also shows the importance of those that are going to receive it. And it really protects them from being whipped up when Paul arrives. He's not trying to just get them to emotionally respond in a moment with maybe someone playing the piano in the background or even to try and guilt trip them into giving in the moment. Because actually, Paul is very clear. Each person is to give according to their income. Paul's command is general. You see that there's a clear expectation. He says, each one of you. He expects that everybody is giving, but it is according to their means. And what Paul's really done uh, throughout the whole of 1 Corinthians is he's really addressed the divisions and the infighting that's going on in Corinth. And he's urging them instead to have sincere love for one another. But this love isn't limited to Corinth. This love isn't just for the person that sits next to you on a Sunday. It actually extends beyond themselves in their own church. They've been so blessed, both materially and spiritually, so they should be willing to give. And that giving should also, we see, be delivered by men of integrity because it is important. It is so important that the gift gets there because this church is in need. It's a very clear act of love that Paul is calling them to. 
I've been able to um, see firsthand the need of Christians in this world. Very uh, recently, um, many of you might know that I got to go to Uganda. And it was very clear there, very, very clear, how many Christians are living in poverty. One woman I remember um, was disabled, so she had to be in a wheelchair. But she wasn't able to use her wheelchair because she had a puncture. Every day she would just sit there, not really being able to do anything because she couldn't afford to fix the puncher. How much did that puncher cost to fix? One pound ten. One pound ten. Saying that we might give pocket money to a child or we could even drop and probably not really care about it. And she couldn't even afford that. There was a young boy that we also met called uh, Moses. Moses um, lived with his mother, and his mother had had to go to meet um, their grandmother because she wasn't very well. Moses was around about 12 years old, and he hadn't eaten for a day when we found him because he had no money. His mother had had to go to the grandmother to try and get some kind of income and try and support her, so Moses was left in the dirt, quite literally, in the noonday sun, with his legs in a horrible position because he was disabled, unable to afford food. We have brothers and sisters in this world right now who are suffering just in the same way that the church in Jerusalem is suffering. The call to the Corinthians is a call that very much relates to us. And the great thing is that we actually get to see how the Corinthian church responded to that. And a little spoiler alert, it's positive. In 2 Corinthians 8, we see that. Verse 10 reads, Last year you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Paul called them in an act of love to give to their brothers and sisters in need, and they responded. And I think there is a direct application for us here at Chesington. We've been given so much materially and spiritually by God in this church that we are called to give. Now, I want to be really, really careful here um, and um, very, very clear as well um, that there are many of you in this church that give massively um, and very sacrificially. As um, a young man, I don't want to sit here and try and and challenge in many senses what is good work that has been going on over the years. I'm not here either to proudly say that I've got this right in my own life. But from this passage, we're not meant to feel guilty, but we're meant to question ourselves, I think. The first question being, if we are a Christian, are we giving what we have materially to those that are in need, to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need? I think that is the first question that we come across. This might just be through you giving to this church or the church that you're part of and then them passing that on. And we should be praying for the eldership and for the ministry team to have wisdom in understanding where the needs are and how to use that money. But for those of us that give... There are questions that we have as well and direct application to our lives. On Tuesday, um, I had the privilege of meeting with my life group and we were discussing the question of whether we found giving hard. 
And as we all spoke about it, we kind of came to the general realization that for most of us, it's not something that we found hard. And I really think therein is the challenge. Because if we're giving, have we become desensitized to it? It's wonderful that many of us are able to give by standing order to this church. But does the standing order come out without thought? Have we reviewed our giving with that raise? When we meet and worship God, as we're doing tonight, we're meeting with one another and we're worshiping God. Have we even during this service remembered that our money is hopefully being used to those needy Christians? When was the last time we sat in this hall during a service and thanked God for the fact that he's blessed us materially that we've been able to give. The removal of just the collection bag that we used to pass around shouldn't mean that our response should change. But it is a challenge. You may need to take some time to think about that practically. Like I said, there are many of you in this room that have been given sacrificially over the years and actually there is a massive kind of call for us to be very un-British, I think, and encourage one another in this, to talk about it in our life groups, to try and encourage one another in how we should think about this. How can we think about when we meet the fact that our giving should be taking place as well? The church is called to display love through giving. That is what Paul is saying very clearly, but that isn't all. Secondly, gospel work that lasts supports gospel workers. Gospel work that lasts supports gospel workers. If you turn on from verse 5, you'll see that the church has been given many gifted gospel workers who are laboring to help people understand the gospel. And the church, therefore, should support them in the work that they might be able to continue in it. Paul's really happy to um, share his plans with the Corinthians. You can just see from the fact that he is sharing all these different plans that he's got, that he loves them. It's very clear to see, but there also is a very clear expectation along with that, that the church will support those people who are working for the gospel. If you look down at verse 6, Paul's speaking about his plans He's telling the Corinthians about what is going to be happening, but he says so that they can help him on his journey. There's an expectation that this church is going to help Paul in some way as he visits them. Paul's work for the gospel is very, very clear. He's busy traveling. He's making plans. He's, he's even seeing gospel fruit, although there's opposition. And just as a side note from this passage... I think it's very, very clear that just because there's opposition to gospel work, it doesn't mean that that gospel work will not be effective. Just because there's opposition does not mean gospel work will not be effective. In fact, very, very often, there will be opposition where the gospel is fruitful. And Paul is deciding to stay in an area that he knows will be hard and will be difficult because he's seeing fruit. That's the calling that he has as a gospel worker. But this gospel work is not exclusively done by Paul. Because the Corinthians needed encouragement, he was going to send Timothy to them. Now, Timothy was a young pastor 
who had been given through God a great gift for preaching and teaching. But think about how he felt about having to go to Corinth. He'd heard the stories, the disunity in the worship, the sexual promiscuity, even those that were almost proud of a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. (laughs) Is that the kind of church that you'd want to go to and encourage? The people didn't respect their leaders. They only followed those who they found impressive. They were definitely going to respond to him in one of two ways. Which way would it have been? Well, we read in chapter 4 that Paul was sending Timothy to urge the Corinthians to imitate Paul. To imitate his way of life, which is not an attractive way of life. A sacrificial way of looking to put Christ first in a culture and a church that was doing the very opposite. This wasn't an easy task for the young Timothy to do. But Paul gives a clear call to love and support him. Look down at verse 10 with me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. The motive to show Timothy love in this way is because he's doing gospel work. And Paul also explains why another gospel leader, Apollos, is not able to be with the Corinthians at that time. He's keen that these people understand what's going on in the life of these gospel workers so they can understand, support, and love them. The work of those gospel workers, those people that are working for the gospel, is illustrated really in the lives of the people that we see day to day. You might have actually thought about this um, on Life Group if you got to go to Life Group on Tuesday. But as I speak about this, there will be people, I believe, that you will naturally remember. People who naturally point you to Christ, who you've seen be servant-hearted and be so centered on the gospel that it points you to the Lord Jesus. I heard about um, somebody recently, um, somebody who has been in a very prominent position in the church, um, but who's now serving in the youth work with really young children. Somebody who would have been seen to be a leader and still is seen to be a leader in many senses in the church, but instead is servant-heartedly serving where there's a need. And who was even seen recently in the toilets cleaning up a child's accident when they pooed on the floor. You could say that he's uh, willing to pick up anything for the gospel. And if you have any kids knowing him, I'd encourage you to get them to have it. No, I wouldn't encourage you to get them to have accidents. But it shows this wonderful servant-heartedness. Somebody in a prominent position that doesn't take that position to be proud, but humbly seeks to serve the church so that the gospel can expand. Not for their own glory, but for Christ's. That's the kind of servant-heartedness leaders should be showing. But the church must support them in doing that. Whether that's through prayer, whether that's through encouragement, whether that's through financially supporting them. But it's not just the paid gospel workers that Paul tells the church to love. The house of Stephanus had devoted themselves to the flock. If you look at verse 16, Paul urges the church to submit 
to such people and everyone, everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. All that is said by Paul really comes under this kind of couple of verses that we see in the middle of verse 13 and 14. And in many ways, 13 and 14 summarise the whole of 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians had wandered from the truth that they had first known, and now Paul has addressed their misunderstandings, and he's urging them to be Christ-centred instead of self-centred. He knows there'll be temptations to go back to the old way. Temptations as he's telling them to give to churches in need and to support gospel workers, for them to go back to how they used to live. He's telling them to support young Timothy when even back in the first couple of chapters, we see that they were just supporting people who they liked. He understands that there is a battle going on, which is why he's saying, be on your guard, stand firm, be men of courage or women of courage, be strong. And everything that that comes under is the positive that he gives to us in verse 14. Do everything in love. Because all that Paul's done for them has been in love. He urges them in turn to love other churches and gospel workers who point them to Christ. Well, how should we live in light of this? Well, Paul's call to do everything in love comes with a practical response, I think, on how we should treat gospel workers. We can easily think of gospel workers only as those people that are paid for it and those that have maybe had a theological education. But Paul very clearly calls for the church to submit to anyone who joins in the work and labours in it. And I can look out now and see people who have done that, that aren't on the ministry team, that we should submit to and encourage. But we're also to support full-time gospel workers. Now, I can promise you that I didn't request this passage, knowing the fact that there would be a church vote going on for me, for you guys to vote for me to have money to go and train. Um, Matt might have stitched me up on that one. But I think there is a very great opportunity that we have as a church to support gospel training, to support somebody like Reese, somebody like Dan Reisinger, somebody like myself, people that want to go out and do gospel work, to send Ben Clark and his family to Sweden. Paul would urge us in love to support this work. So the application for us is, as a church, to support that work, to go and cast your vote, to support, not just financially, but also in prayer, for people that want to go and spread the gospel in the sense of doing full-time ministry. We've also got the chance to support gospel workers as well. You might have seen um, in the In Touch that we have a family coming to um, stay with us. The Bileys, if I've pronounced that correctly, sorry if I haven't, are coming to our church to train gospel workers to be church planters. We might not have met them yet. We might not have met Nikita, who's coming from Cornhill yet, but we are called by Paul through the, through the Bible to love these people and support them. Our church has a really rich history of supporting people, as Reese spoke, spoke about earlier, and sending people out for the work of the gospel. Long may that continue. And Paul concludes his letter by reminding the church they're part of the global church. They've got gospel partners who love them, 
Look down at verse 19 with me. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets in their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with the holy kiss. We've already seen in the first part of this chapter this idea that the church doesn't stand alone. Local churches should be supporting other churches who are in need. And this view of this corporate church is one that Paul shares in these greetings. Greetings that are coming from many different people in different situations and different contexts and completely different areas, but they're all linked through the gospel. The Corinthians are to remember that they're not just a single congregation, but they're brought together. John actually read this earlier. It starts even Paul's reminder of this in um, chapter 1, where Paul says, So the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. It's so important that the Corinthians remember it's not just them as a singular. And so important the gospel is to Paul that he even curses anyone who would work against it. And he ends with this affirmation that it is his writing. This all holds the authority of an apostle. Now, to end, you may be sitting here um, as somebody that isn't a Christian, and you're thinking, well, Nathan, this seems all well and good. It seems like a great idea to go and give um, to churches in need. It seems a great idea to go and give to people that are going to work for the church. But actually, Marvel motivates their customers to act, but I don't think that Paul has motivated me to act. Well, the motivation to do all of what Paul says comes from these final verses. Look down at verse 23 and 24 with me. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love to you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. You see, only when you see the grace of Jesus through his sacrifice on the cross will you be prepared to respond to this. Being captured by Jesus' love for us will in turn cause us to love, whether that's through giving to needy Christians or whether that is supporting gospel workers. The big problem in Corinth is that they wanted to look impressive. They wanted to live for themselves. They wanted church to become about them. They were self-centered, not Christ-centered. And Paul's aim was to shift their focus away from themselves and back to Christ. Giving to gospel work and supporting people in need was to take their eyes off themselves and to Jesus. And if you're not a Christian here, well, Christ calls you into his family. We're not a perfect family, but we're a family that are called to love because we were first loved. We're bound together by Jesus. As he hung on the cross to take the punishment for our sins, he was winning a people to himself. And for us who are already trusting in God, we've heard this morning on how we are to love those who are weaker in their faith. And tonight, we've seen that Paul tells us to ensure that our labor in the Lord is not in vain, that our labor here at Chesington as a church and individually is not in vain. 
We're called to give to those that are in need and to support gospel work in love because what Christ Jesus has done for us by dying on the cross. Let me pray that we would remember these things and apply them to our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you that all of your word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would help us to be thinking even now of how we can apply this to our lives. But that we would remember as Christians that these are not things that we are just to do to become justified. No, the justification has already been taken place. Your son died on the cross And because of that love shown for us, we are called to love in return. Like the Corinthians, we are called to support our brothers and sisters in need and to support the work of the gospel. Thank you for the many years that our church has been doing that. I pray that you'd help us to continue in that and that you'd help us to be challenged where where you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.